0: By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps.
1: At Evernorth Health Services, we
0: believe costs
1: shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com
2: wonder this is GPS the global public square welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York I want to first bring in CNN's chief international security correspondent, Nick Payton Walsh, who is in Zaporizhia near the front lines. Uh, Nick, you were hearing uh, what President Zelensky was saying, a message of uh, defiance, uh, commitment to continue the conflict, uh, and just pointing out if if Ukraine has the weapons, they will be able to win this war. What does it look like to you um, where where you stand? What are people talking about uh, closer to the front lines?
3: Yeah, I mean, important to uh, point out, for that uh, listening to President Zelensky there, we got the first initial idea or sort of the, the germ seed potentially of some sort of diplomacy potentially or even a peace plan. Now, the d- details are limited at this stage, but Zelensky spoke of a potential summit in Switzerland in the spring and I think uh, conceived the idea of a unilateral path towards... Uh, a peaceful settlement with Russia. One, I think that he seemed to outline Ukraine and their partners would propose. And then, of course, he said, look, it may be that Russia entirely rejects that document. And while I think it's important to point out that Moscow and Kiev are very far apart in terms of what they conceive their end goals in this to be, I think it's fair to say using the stage on this extraordinary platform he has on the first day of the third year of the war to propose the possibility of a diplomatic process, even if it is one that's entirely unilateral, that's essentially Ukraine saying to Moscow, this is a proposal you could take if you wanted to stop this war i think that is a significant moment Uh, and it's one i think that he's clear to point out if i heard him correctly uh during that speech that doesn't mean ukraine stops the fight doesn't mean necessarily that they're willing to accept a terminology or formula from russia but we are now potentially looking at a moment where we'll see the battlefield progress not particularly great for Ukraine at the moment, multiple fronts here, multiple areas along the front where they're feeling pressure. But then possibly if the Swiss summit continues in the spring, I think listening to Zelensky, it was unclear if they thought Russia necessarily would be in attendance or they might be invited or uh, if that's something clearly to still be worked out. But it's interesting to hear Volodymyr Zelensky, who's been speaking for a while about a quite maximalist position, about essentially clearing Russia out of all of Ukraine as its 91 borders stood, now talking about the possibility of presenting a way out of this conflict. Now early stages, lots of details to be hammered out. But that was the first question uh, that he got, and uh, to me, I-, I felt that was a departure from what we've heard in the past from Ukrainian officials. So, interesting that he chooses this moment to put that forward, and it comes, Farid, at a time, as you just alluded to in your question, forgive me for not answering it directly, uh, a v- great trouble for Ukraine on the front lines. That $60 billion from the U.S. is utterly urgent. It's, you know, Since the December holdup, we've really felt morale begin to a road, a little on multiple fronts. Ukrainians don't simply have the choice to give up and stop the fight because of the goals that Russia has set of essentially what they call denazifying, demilitarizing uh, the country. That means for many Ukrainians here a life of Frankly, fear if not actual potential violence towards them, uh, and so it's a dire situation for them in terms of the aid. Before this speech, we heard multiple Ukrainian officials take the stage and outline detailed problems they were facing in terms of components getting through to Russia for their weapons, in terms of slowness of delivery. A lot moving uh, here today, but uh, uh, interesting that the first. Real time we hear from Zelensky on this day, uh, many eyes towards him after a long succession of European and Western leaders yesterday in Kiev, talking about the continued support for Ukraine. The the notion, the sort of glimmer here, the possibility that some sort of diplomacy might happen in the uh, months ahead, even if it seems it's entirely unilateral and something that Russia can either take or leave.
2: Thank you, Nick. I think you put it right, it's a glimmer. Uh, you know, the peace summit was already planned and Ukraine has previously made diplomatic proposals, which are essentially that Russia leave all of Ukraine. Highly unlikely Russia will accept those those proposals. So uh, I think you put it exactly right. It is a glimmer, probably no more than that. Thank you, Nick Payton-Walsh. Um, next on GPS, I'm gonna tell you how this kind of conflict seems to have become the new normal around the world and what we can do about it when we come back. Here's my take. Looking at the crises proliferating around the world, it's clear that we are in an age of geopolitical tension that resembles the Cold War, a time of constant, continual threats to international order. But this time, the West is treating each of these threats as one-offs to be dealt with separately in the hope that soon normalcy will return. But conflict is the new normal. Look around. The war is going badly for Ukraine, which is critically outgunned and outmanned by its much larger adversary. Its key advantage, access to Western arms and money, is in peril. The U.S. Congress seems unwilling to pass legislation to send it more arms and money. The European Union is stepping in and filling parts of the gap, but Europe does not have the military-industrial complex to send Ukraine the level of armaments it needs to fight Russia. Ukraine's army has held out heroically against Russia's onslaught. But as a senior European diplomat said to me recently, Ukrainians are brave and bold, but they are not supermen. They will not be able to hold on if they don't have weapons and supplies. Putin is making sure that he can keep the war going, getting arms from North Korea, and recruiting men from as far as Cuba. He continues to benefit from the fact that many of the world's major economies, from China and India to Turkey and the Gulf states, are trading freely with Russia. If Russia's aggression works, it tears up a norm that has largely stood for 80 years, no change of borders by force. Meanwhile in the Middle East, many believed when the Gaza war began that it would be short and that Prime Minister Netanyahu's government would fall. Neither is likely. The Israel Defense Forces, humiliated by the surprise attack of October 7th, are determined to completely eradicate Hamas from Gaza. That means months more of bombing, fighting and bulldozing. The tensions and internal debates that Israel's actions will produce in other countries will only rise. Bibi Netanyahu is going nowhere. Most Israelis may dislike him, but they approve of his war policies. This week, in a pointed rebuke to international calls to pursue a two state solution, including from the US and Britain, Israel's Knesset approved a resolution declaring that it was opposed to any unilateral recognition of a Palestinian state with 99 out of 120 votes. Bibi's coalition, remember, has only 64 members, so many opposition parliamentarians joined in. One less noticed theater has been in the north. Israel has been striking and killing Hezbollah militants to the point that by one account they have killed over 200 of them. This campaign will continue and might even accelerate the IDF's goal is to weaken Hezbollah to the point that the roughly 80,000 Israelis who fled their homes in northern Israel can return. But at some point Hezbollah might respond forcefully, which could trigger an Israeli incursion into Lebanon, truly widening the war. And then we have the Houthis, who have managed to assert themselves through a series of pinprick strikes that, according to one consulting firm, have reduced the number of container vessels through the Suez Canal by about 72 percent since they began in December. American efforts to organize an effective coalition to keep trade flowing through the Red Sea have failed. Its efforts to respond to Houthi attacks have not stopped the Houthis. This failure is a blow to the credibility of the United States, guaranteeing the freedom of the seas, a key component of the open global economy that's been built over two centuries, first with the British Navy and then the American. And more threats to maritime underpinnings of that order are on the horizon. Russia and China have both been building up the capacity to cut undersea cables, which are now an integral part of the cloud on which data is stored across the globe. If the U.S. can't deter a sub-state actor like the Houthis from its disruptive behavior in the Red Sea, what chance does it have against powers like China and Russia? There are ways to address all these problems, but it requires a paradigm shift in the Western world. We are now in a high-security age. That means governments have to spend significantly more on defense and spend more efficiently. The U.S. took on the role as guarantor of the freedom of the seas in 1945 and has been master of the seas ever since. In the 1980s, it had almost 600 ships, but today it has fewer than 300. Europe has lost its military-industrial complex, which allowed it to produce munitions on a near-constant basis. In these new dangerous times, congressional Republicans have decided to return to isolationism, hoping that they can bury their heads in the sand and the problems will somehow go away. It should be noted that, contrary to popular belief, ostriches do not bury their heads in the sand to escape threats. In fact, it would lead to their asphyxiation. Maybe the birds understand something congressional Republicans don't. Go to CNN.com opinions for a link to my column this week. Next on GPS, it has been two years since the Russian invasion of Ukraine and two weeks since Donald Trump threatened to leave European nations exposed to Russia's aggression. I talked to Radek Sikorski, Foreign Minister of Poland, Ukraine's neighbor to the Northwest, and a frontline state that Moscow has invaded many times.
0: This podcast is supported by NetSuite. Quick math. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit from NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com GPS. NetSuite.com GPS.
2: Two years ago this weekend, Russia stunned the world by invading Ukraine with a plan to seize the country in a matter of days. Ukraine can be proud of its response. As David to Russia's Goliath, it stopped the invaders from taking Kiev in the early days and has kept about 80% of its territory. But today, as I mentioned, the tide appears to be in Moscow's favor as its heavily armed troops make gains on the battlefield and U.S. aid for Kiev dries up. One country that has stayed fiercely loyal to Ukraine is neighboring Poland, a country that sits on NATO's eastern flank, hard up against Russian territory. Joining me to discuss the war's future is the Polish foreign minister, Radek Sikorsky. Welcome, Radek. Hello. Um, I have to ask you the, the, the question on, on all of our minds. What did you, as somebody who is, you know, a senior European diplomat, um, what did you make of of that comment that no, Trump made. You, I would tell Putin, do whatever you, do you what have to uh, you uh, to those NATO, NATO countries that are not paying what he defines as their fair share.
4: Well, we hope this is just uh, a former President Trump's flamboyant style, that what he meant was that he really, really wants us to spend at least 2% of uh, GDP on defense and on substance he's right. Poland has been spending 2% for 15 years. We've now gone on to obligatory 3% of GDP. In fact, we'll be spending close to 4% of GDP. And I'll tell you more, if needs be, if Putin really threatens us, we'll double it because we will not be a Russian colony again.
2: But when you hear that, does it say to you, um, you know, Radek, that uh, America's promise to defend Europe it's a psychological, you know, it's a, it's a, Putin is trying to figure out when he makes his moves, how likely is it that the Americans are going to, to come and sacrifice their, their soldiers for some, you know, European capital or, or some small European country like Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania. Has what Trump said already changed the dynamic in the sense of putting doubt in the minds of, of Europeans that America will come to, to its aid and emboldening the Russians to think, yeah, you know, maybe the Americans won't.
4: You're right that the uh, real strength of NATO is not the parchments, it's not the seals, it's not the signatures, it's not even the laws. It is the uncertainty in the minds of our adversaries about what will happen if they attack, or rather the likelihood that the United States will come to the assistance of its allies. And this is what President Biden calls the sacred pledge. And what we have said to these comments is that an alliance is not a contract with a neighborhood uh, security company. You pay and therefore you protect me. the Article 5 of the Washington Treaty which established NATO has only been invoked once so far, after 9-11 in defense of the United States. And, uh, uh, and after the appeal from the United States, we sent troops to Afghanistan. Poland sent a brigade to Ghazni, a tough province. Before that, we sent a brigade to Iraq, where we were responsible for protecting five million Iraqis. When that mission was accomplished, we did not send an invoice to Washington. Alliances helped the United States, not just the Allies.
2: Do you feel as though Americans are losing, losing an understanding of that reality, that the, that, the, that the world the United States has built is a win win? It's not just that Europe benefits, but the
4: United States benefits as well. Uh, yes, it does. Uh, so, uh, um, since the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine, Europe has ordered $90 billion worth of American military equipment. Poland, um, through, on a longer time scale, has ordered 50 billion. We are buying Apaches, we are buying Hamas, we are buying Abram tax, we are buying F-35s. We are buying this because your equipment is good, but also because we want to be in good graces with our important, most important ally. If America's uh, credibility were shaken, if um, countries not just in Europe, also in the Far East started to think that perhaps the US president can't deliver even when he wants to help your ally, much of that would be lost.
2: Tell me about Ukraine. You know it well, you were before you were foreign minister, you've been privately, as a private citizen, you actually um, helped uh, the Ukrainian army sending supplies in there. Um, what does it look to you like on the battlefield?
4: The Ukrainians have fought like lions. Um, these uh, victories in Bakhmut, in Avdivka, have come at a huge cost in uh, materiel and men for Russia. Um, the Ukrainians na- are now in the defense mode, um, and, and, and they are outgunned. Uh, I was in Kiev in. Uh, December and I talk to my Ukrainian counterparts all the time, around Avdivka, they were outgunned in artillery eight to one. So they're doing close uh, quarter combat, which is why people are dying in greater numbers than, than they should be because of the shortage of arms. And the shortage of arms is because the supplemental hasn't yet passed.
2: What would you say to Mike Johnson if you had a chance to talk to him?
4: I would say as a former speaker, to a current speaker, I would say, Mr. Speaker, it is the fate of Ukraine, it is the tortured people of Ukraine that beg you, but it is also the credibility of your country that is at stake. The president of the United States in wartime went to Kiev on his historic visit, planted the standard of the United States in downtown Kiev, saying, you are an ally, we will do whatever it takes and for however long it takes to help you. The word of the United States has has been spoken. It needs to be followed up with action, with deliveries.
2: Stay with us. When we come back, Polish democracy. For most of the last decade, Poland was a poster child for the backsliding of democracy. But just a few months ago, power chained hands, And this week Warsaw presented plans to restore rule of law and other such norms. I will discuss this remarkable turnaround and the troubles in restoring democracy with the country's foreign minister, Radoslaw Sikorski. For much of the last decade, many watched Poland with alarm as the right-wing Law and Justice Party took steps to control the country's courts and its media This led the European Union to warn in 2017 of a clear risk of a serious breach of the rule of law in Poland. But in October, Poland reversed course by electing a broad centrist coalition with Donald Tusk as prime minister. Back with me to discuss the country's new direction and the challenges ahead is Radek Sikorski, who serves as foreign minister. So Radek, tell us a little bit of what it was like to come back to power after this uh, populist government had been in power. What
4: had changed? Um, There was a vote, a general election in which 75% of the nation, unprecedented uh, turnout, voted to end populist rule and to have a pro-European, pro-democracy government, which is to say us. Put
2: that in historical perspective.
4: The vote that took place to vote communism out was 64%. 64% turnout. So So people were more worried about the drift of the country in the last few years than even under communism. And there were reasons for it. You didn't mention the security services were used to target the opposition. Um, The uh, Pegasus anti-terrorist software was used against journalists, against opposition figures. The head of our election campaign was targeted. Um, and there were, uh, it, 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 there was also widespread corruption. So this needs to be addressed. We need to bring back the norms, which is to say. Competitive examinations in the civil service, fair, professional public media that tell the truth are not the arm of one party pr- propaganda. Uh, judges that are free to adjudicate uh, fairly rather than being told to go after the enemies of the ruling party and so on.
2: Is this, how difficult is this? Because, as I understand, competitive examinations in, in Polish bureaucracies were
4: eliminated. This so. was one of the first things they did. Um, so, in my own ministry, in the, in, in, the, in the foreign ministry, I have a number of unqualified people who would not have been allowed to join uh, the diplomatic service because they don't speak the languages, for example. And, you know, some of these people, when we say, well, look, you don't meet the criteria, uh, will then say that this is persecution. But, but no, we just need, we've had a period of a rebellion against meritocracy. We are bringing meritocracy back.
2: What do you think is the key to understanding how to combat this kind, these kind of uh, you know, this kind of anti-democratic uh, movements that say what's more important is that you're faithful to us than you're faithful to the norms? Do you do you need to? I mean, I look at January sixth and wonder: uh, should there have been um, you know, kind of co- big congressional investigations or kind of truth and justice like investigations
4: right after? Are you doing things like that? Well. I won't interfere in the internal affairs of of a friendly, uh, allied country, but I will say this, you need to give a lesson to a whole generation of politicians that breaking the constitution, breaking the law is not without consequences. Constitutions, are only as good as the integrity of the people in key positions to uphold the rules. And when they don't uphold the rules, they, they need to, to uh, see that it is detrimental to their careers and worse. Um, constitutions don't defend themselves. So, yes, you have to, um, you have to renew your vows with democracy. I, I knew you, you when you were an anti-communist agitator
2: in your 20s. And now here you are, second time foreign minister of Poland, and really one of the anchors of democracy in Europe. It's been, it's been quite a transformation of this country.
4: Well, look, I learned my anti-communism because in uh, living in, on, the, on this communist estate in, in, a, in a provincial town in Poland, I was able to listen to Voice of America and to learn the truth about what was going on in my own country. And, uh, and we struggle for democracy against communism, and we're still uh, upholding democracy because we want Poland to be a normal, regular Western country with all the benefits of free enterprise, of uh, freedom to worship. Um, b- but we live in, 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 in an age in which some of our compatriots have lost faith in these uh, ideals. You know, it's the Ukrainians who should be inspiring us because they are fighting for the right to A, be a nation, and B, to be a pro-Western democratic nation that, uh, that, uh, that, that, that aspires to prosperity. If they are willing to die for those values, we should value them too.
2: And all you're saying is you still want to hear the voice of America. That's right. <laughs> Radek Sikorsky. Thank you. Next on GPS, El Salvador was once the most dangerous place in the world. Today, it boasts one of the lowest murder rates in the entire Western Hemisphere. What or who is responsible for this transformation? We'll tell you after the break.
0: From executive producers Park chan and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April
2: 14th exclusively on Max. Until recently, El Salvador was the most dangerous country on the planet, a place overrun by gangs. Today, it boasts of having a lower murder rate than the United States. This dramatic transformation is the work of Nayib Bukele, the current president who calls himself the coolest dictator in the world. Bukele was elected in 2019 and enacted a harsh crackdown on gang violence arresting more than 70,000 people and prosecuting them in mass trials. This approach has proven extremely effective, but at a grave cost to civil liberties. Earlier this month, Bukele was re-elected in a landslide, and other countries have looked to emulate his model. Here to discuss is Brian Winter, Editor-in-Chief of America's Quarterly. Brian, in a nutshell, what explains Bukele's enormous popularity? He has,
1: Farid, as you noted, overseen a dramatic not only decline in homicides in El Salvador, down more than 80% in the last couple of years, but also declines in extortion, uh, robberies, and other crimes. Salvadorans feel like they can go out on the street again. They had lost the ability to do that in recent years. He's also tremendously effective on social media. He speaks well. He has leaned into that title that you noted, semi-ironically, of uh, the world's coolest dictator, but it has all come at considerable cost.
2: Uh, Tell us a little bit more about him because he is a very colorful, charismatic character. He's
1: 42 years old. He's a millennial. Uh, he sometimes appears in public with a, a backwards baseball cap. Um, very colorful figure. Uh, speaks well. I mean, he—if he, you listen to him in interviews, he's articulate. He kind of turns things around and says, "Well, I'm." People say that I'm not being democratic, but what was democratic about? the lives that Salvadorans were living through before, um, when essentially their, the civil liberties of the majorities were restricted, not being able to go outside, not being able to live their pe- lives in peace, not being able to open businesses without paying off the gangs and so on. So he, he has quite cleverly um, played on on the many problems that this country had in the past. Remembering that only 10 years ago, this was a country that had a homicide rate of over 100 per 100,000 people. And if you know those figures, I mean, that's, those are terrible numbers. It was one of the world's most violent countries.
2: In a sense, you know, he represents, it seems to me, this, this sense in certain places that democracy hasn't delivered. That it hasn't delivered for people. And in this case, in the most stark sense, which is the simple act of the government keeping you safe, Um, Is it possible that other Central American countries and Latin American countries will look at this as a kind of example to be followed?
1: Many of them already are uh, in other countries around Latin America, such as uh, Ecuador, uh, Nayib Bukele routinely uh, shows up as being more popular, having a higher approval rating than any uh, national politician. There have been uh, other politicians in other places that have said that they want to follow his example. In Argentina, where Javier Milei recently took office, his security minister recently met with the security, uh, the justice minister of El Salvador, uh, ostensibly to to learn things that that might work in Argentina. Um, which has also faced a security challenge in relative terms in recent years. But, you know, Fareed, all of this has made us ask questions about, uh, difficult questions sometimes about the nature of democracy. Because on the one hand, those of us who consider ourselves advocates for democracy and human rights can stand on the outside um, very upset by These mass arrests, which at times seem arbitrary, the suspension of due process, the state of exception that has existed now in El Salvador um, for more than a year. But the fact is, the overwhelming support for um, what Bukele is doing within El Salvador, it cannot be ignored. Um, This was someone who was just reelected again um, with a huge majority of the vote.
2: Tell me how this plays into the immigration debate in the United States. Uh, what is you know What does it mean and what, does he talk about that?
1: What has happened over the last year and a half or so with the security crackdown that Bukele has done is that the, the rate at which uh, migrants are leaving El Salvador has fallen by about a third. And in recent months, we've seen It has to be said a a change, it seems, from the Biden administration in terms of how they handle Bukele. Um, they, uh, uh, as recently as a year ago, were quite publicly calling on him to respect the Constitution, to respect human rights. Um, but starting in late 2023, they seem to adopt a different posture, recognizing perhaps that immigration is the number one challenge that they face now uh, in polls as President Biden attempts to get reelected. And the as- the atmospherics around that relationship have now become more positive. Um, a State Department official was in, was in San Salvador uh, in October, shaking hands publicly with Bukele. We hadn't really seen that before. And the rhetoric in public has changed. I'm told that in private, uh, U.S. officials are still pressing those concerns with Bukele. But there seems to have been a decision to, you know, to work with this guy, um, in part because they need him on immigration and also in part because it, it doesn't seem like he's going anywhere.
2: All right, and thank you so much. That was a fascinating insight into a, a small but important country close by.
1: Thank you, Farid.:
2: Before we go, I want to tell you about a new special from me that is premiering tonight right here on CNN. It is called Why Iran Hates America, a Fareed Zakaria special. And it's on at 8 p.m. Eastern. In the show, we explore how the Islamic Republic has become a dominant force in the turmoil in the Middle East, and just why it holds so much animosity toward the United States. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I hope to see you tonight at 8 p.m. and right back here next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you.